This is not the media. This is hell. Dating all the way back to the presidency of Ronald Reagan, conservatives have been doing everything they can, working diligently, incredibly hard, to completely dismantle public education and replace it with some for-profit model that oddly benefits their benefactors, the wealthy interests of the Republican Party. Go figure. Of course, these ideas are based around an ideology of the end of any and everything public, especially when it comes to increasingly secularized schools, which are one of the last and biggest funded public projects in the United States, and for-profit interests can't wait to get their hooks into that public money. But all that excitement over charter schools had seemed to fade of late, that is, until about five, maybe ten years ago, when it really took off again during the Obama administration with centrist Democrats trying to find bipartisan consensus with those who want to end public education. In doing so themselves by supporting programs like school vouchers, Democrats have already contributed to the destruction of the public schoolhouse. Worse yet, with the pandemic, those who want to end public schooling now have a golden opportunity to impose their always-dreamed utopia of in-home virtual schooling where parents buy education products in an open marketplace instead of students actually exchanging ideas with teachers and learning from fellow students in an actual brick-and-mortar school. Yes, the in-home schooling your kids are doing right now, what they're experiencing right now, that's what conservatives have always dreamed would happen, and they cannot wait to take advantage of a pandemic which has given them the chance to impose their schooling model on all of us. We'll learn what the real threat is to public education and how much of a threat it really is when we speak in a few with Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire, co-authors of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. Learn more about Jack and Jennifer's book at wolfattheschoolhousedoor.com. Jack is the author of three books and an award-winning education historian. He is a host of the education podcast, Have You Heard? Find out more about the Have You Heard podcast on Twitter at Have You Heard Pod. You can follow Jack on Twitter at edu underscore historian, edu underscore historian. Jen is a freelance journalist and also hosts the education podcast, Have You Heard? with Jack Schneider. You can follow Jennifer on Twitter at Bis for Berkshire, B-I-S for Berkshire. This is Jennifer's second appearance on This Is Hell. She was on the show nearly three years ago to the day back in 2017 when she was on to discuss her then-just-posted article at The Baffler, How Education Reform Ate the Democratic Party. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this morning's show, if it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. How are you, Richard? Any new, anything new in your world? Well, a little bit, yeah. What's that? So, do you have a uh, Chicago Public Library annex in your neighborhood? Yes, I do. Are you a card-carrying member? (laughs) I was until I lost my (laughs) library card a very long time ago. Oh, you should get it renewed. I should. You know, I I had one many years ago, and and, uh, there is an annex about a 10-minute walk from my house, which is really sweet. Mm -hmm. Um, I I knew this a long time ago, but... um, uh, I got my new card in the Chicago Public Library, and most libraries have a, an amazing DVD collection, and you can borrow DVDs and other multimedia things there, so it's pretty exciting. Yeah, to, I've, I heard they have a whole bunch of really rare stuff from the Criterion yeah, Collection. Yeah, so. and the Kino Lorbor Collection and Music Box Films, and you can also, there are, are also uh, great streaming options, too, to just... Uh, that you can get hooked up to oh through with. the library's website yeah exactly. no kidding yeah and there's a uh, uh, canopy is the app it, it's a if you have a library card you can get access to all of their streaming things too so it's a, a great alternative to Amazon or Netflix Net- yeah. or whatever else if you don't want to pay for those you can check out your library and something that's a good deep dive during the pandemic exactly. too did you find anything that really caught your eye um, yeah I've been going through there's I mean they th- just because they do have a, a a large selection from the criterion collection that they have uh, movies in their library that that Netflix doesn't have so 
So it's pretty awesome. What was the movie? What's the most recent movie you saw? Uh, Jean Cocteau's Orpheus. <laughs> there you go. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. That is very cool. At least you weren't watching Unchien Andalou for the 17th time in a row. Uh, so what, uh, uh, Richard, what the more important thing here? Yes, sir. What is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Exactly. This <laughs> week's question from hell is, what are you refusing to concede? What are you refusing to concede? And I do have to check out the Chicago Public Library streaming online uh, content for video. That sounds fantastic because I really am, don't want to be giving any money to Amazon or Netflix. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins our new Graham Black. This is Hell Winter Hat. Oh, Richard, I have one of those for you here as well. Ooh, does it have a beanie on top? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> you can check out the new Graham Black. This is Hell Winter Hat. Beanie, whatever you want to call it. I don't know why they call it a beanie, but they do and there is no beanie on top. And all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to complete listener supported this is hell without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our facebook page you can tweet it to us you can email it to us but you have to have your answer to us by the end of thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment of truth jeff stands on a principle richard will is have that principle or principal <laughs> it's principle p-l-e <laughs> but i was concerned about that as well i had a uh uh an apartment here in Chicago that the front door of the apartment, uh, it had like a bathroom, like glass window, like a frosted glass okay. window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I looked at that door every day and I was like, why does this look so familiar to me? Why does it look so familiar to me? And I realized it looked like so many school doors that said either office or principal on them. <laughs> so I had my girly make a sticker that looked exactly like a principal office door. And we just put the word principal AL on the door <laughs> and our neighbors loved it. It was nice. really, I should have just put office or janitor. That would have been good. Uh, Richard, We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. What are you refusing con- to concede in a few? You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong, This Is Hell. It is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to touch on all of any guest's work as we discuss it during our approximately 40-minute conversations every morning here on This Is Hell. And there are two points that guests who were on last week's show making their writing that we didn't get a chance to mention or touch on during our interviews. We started last week uh, talking with activist scholar Muhammad Abdu, who wrote the Roar magazine article, Let Empire Collapse, a conversation that led to a listener contacting us to say, Muhammad Abdu is hardcore, yo. Muhammad writes in his Roar magazine piece, nowadays much like the way Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality is toothlessly deployed by woke activists as an add-on, progressives ritually conduct empty land settler colonial acknowledgments. They pay lip service to the fact that they are on stolen land without addressing the implications of this given their complicity in land theft and indigenous demands for land's rematriation. Why? Because... It is easier for settlers to trade on the questionable myth of a secular American dream and its hyphenated melting pot of identities that are indignantly detached from land-based histories and practices and an immeasurable continuing violence against indigenous and black peoples defining its landscape. Think about that. It's easier. The current state of affairs when it comes to racism in the United States, that's easier for us to deal with than living on stolen land. Yeah, sure, racism today is bad, but if we had to face up to the racism of genocide and that the United States is an occupying force living on stolen land, we'd probably all lose our minds. So sure, we're racist, but at least we don't have to acknowledge genocide and that we are all complicit in land theft. I found the idea that we tolerate our racism because we need it to distract us from a far worse racism that lies and lurks underneath the reality of the United States at all times. I found that idea illuminating, enlightening, and incredibly disturbing. Also on the show last week when we were speaking with Yorgos Kallis and Susan Paulson about their book, The Case for Degrowth, we didn't get to a point they make about common sense and how nonsensical it is. Yorgos and Susan write, Perpetual growth has become common sense to citizens socialized by mass media, museums, and history books that incite the thrill of exceptional expansion. Perpetual growth and compound growth seem senseless on a finite planet, yet too many people 
They actually make sense, make common sense. Common senses often work to protect the status quo by making business as usual appear natural and logical. Ideologies that portray conventional beliefs as self-evident truths can make it unthinkable, unethical, even unpatriotic to ask critical questions. Against greed is natural and more is better, degrowth calls for nurturing common senses promoted by enduring cultural and religious traditions around the world, including share more, lack less, and enough is enough. One silver lining of historical crises is their potential to destabilize established truths, opening transformative possibilities. Unsettled times often shift the ways we draw on coexisting realms of common sense, like today's unsettled times. Common sense, then, would seem to be the enemy of critical analysis, keeping us from considering, say, the role of our political economy and the role it plays in the many shortcomings we see in society when it comes to things like poverty, inequality, racism, and sexism. Common sense, then, according to Yorgos and Susan, is an enemy of critical thinking, and whenever anyone says everyone knows that about any conventional wisdom, what they're really saying is, I fully endorse the status quo of the very wealthy being in complete control. Everything's fine. Now shut up. That's why if you like an interview we have done here on This Is Hell, I cannot urge you enough to buy the book and read it because the book is always better than the movie or the interview. But still, I learned from the interviews themselves, like yesterday when we discussed Elsewhere, Alistair Bonnet's book on our age of violence, we started Monday's show talking about denialism, specifically the denialism of Trump supporters at rallies in Washington, D.C. last weekend who were carrying signs and chanting phrases that included stop the steal and stop the count. Democrats and liberals of all stripes simply cannot understand the Trump crowd's denialism. But we all live in denialism because if we didn't have that coping mechanism, the fear of a pandemic and our future disappearing with climate change would likely make it so we would never get out of bed. And it makes sense that here in the states, across the political spectrum, it is easy to perform this kind of denialism because we are indoctrinated with the denialism of U.S. history through our instilled beliefs in American exceptionalism and innocence. But there is another kind of denialism that Alistair pointed out at the end of yesterday's conversation. We have the belief that we can get away from it all, that there is an island or a forest or a valley or a mountaintop somewhere secluded in nature where we can simply escape from reality, free from the oppressive world of viruses and global warming and the many brutal and cruel violences of our political economy. That idea that we can escape from it all, that we can go to a retreat or an escape, those are all forms of denialism, denying that our world is so bad we need to hide from it every so often, as we often say, recharge ourselves in order to tolerate our lonesome, depressing reality. Vacation is denialism, which made me wonder what else is. Is the idea of retirement cloaked in denialism, the concept that you can work up until a certain age and then for your last 20 or so years on earth, you can sequester yourself away from the world, kick back, relax, and watch time pass as if nothing you do has any impact on anyone but you and yours. Does the very concept of retirement deny the impact your work has had on the world? And you do not have to question how your employment may have contributed to climate change or inequality or how much the profits of the business where we worked were based on the exploitation of others far more poor who never got to retire or even live long enough to contemplate taking a break from their drudgery. See, we told you this is hell, but this is hell is not as bad as the hell that is being experienced by one of our listeners. Immediately after yesterday's show, we got an email from Dan, who writes, I thought I would tell you, I listened to your interview with anthropologist Wade Davis every one or two weeks, the interview he did this, last, this past summer. Wade is very special. Others I like include Lawrence Wilkerson, Mark Blythe, Danny Scherzen, Tim Snyder, all truth tellers. Also, Roger Halam. Your show is fantastic. I love in a lost place in Indianapolis where many are attached to Trump's behind and won't wear a mask and, of course, are obese. I am a geriatric doctor signing COVID death certificates by the score. Our world is probably going out, and so, of course, this is hell. Dan. Now, the obese remark triggered my anti-Lucas beliefs a bit until I realized Dan is a doctor and he is coming from the perspective of a healthcare professional who is concerned about his, parent, uh, his patient's health. 
But just to repeat what Dan wrote, I'm a geriatric doctor signing COVID death certificates by the score. Our world is probably going out, and so of course this is hell. Dan, thanks for everything you do, because you are correct. This is hell coming up on this show, the dismantling of public education in the United States and what that means for democracy. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you refusing to concede? What are you refusing to concede? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing as Richard Norwood, live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is how 40 years ago the Reagan administration made the first attempts at dismantling public education and replacing it with a for-profit model. That idea was met by a lot of criticism, suspicion, doubt, and eventually protest, eventually actually killing the movement. But it was far from dead. Instead, over the past decade, with its original ideology now obfuscated by jargon preaching, freedom and choice. The project to essentially end public education is back and with a vengeance. And this time, the conservative model for education is getting some support from Democrats, too, here to help us understand the threat to public education and what it means, even for those who are long past school age. Jax Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire are co-authors of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. First, Welcome to This Is Hell, Jack. Great to be here. Jack Schneider. Jack Schneider is the author of three books and an award-winning education historian. He is a host of the education podcast, Have You Heard? You can follow Jack on Twitter at edu underscore historian. Jennifer is a freelance journalist and hosts the education podcast, Have You Heard? with Jack Schneider. You can follow Jennifer on Twitter at bis for berkshire Welcome back to This Is Hell, Jen. What a thrill. I've been practicing answering questions of hell all this time. <laughs> I'm sure you have. Are you staring in the mirror when you're doing that? I, I I so regret not being prepared the last time. Not a day has passed since then that I haven't rethought my answer. <laughs> this is Jen's second appearance on This Is Hell. She was on the show nearly three years ago to the day back in 2017 when she was on to discuss her then just posted article at The Baffler, How Education Reform Ate the Democratic Party. You can find out more about the Have You Heard podcast on Twitter at Have You Heard Pod, and you can learn more about Jack and Jennifer's book at wolfattheschoolhousedoor.com. Jack, let's start with you. You write, when Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos was asked in an interview whether she saw the coronavirus pandemic as an opportunity to advance the cause of private school choice, she responded without hesitation, Yes, absolutely. Obviously, the correct answer is nobody should be seeking opportunity at a time of a public health crisis like a pandemic. But, Jack, aside from that, does the pandemic offer opportunities for the private school industry that it does not afford public schools? Absolutely. And there are two big ways DeVos has tried to really pry this open. The first is that as somebody who has historically staked out a very clear position on standardized tests, which is that she doesn't believe in them. And that's not for the reason that I don't believe in them, right? I don't believe that standardized tests accurately measure what students know and can do, and they sure as heck don't measure school quality. They tell us a lot more about demography than anything else. Her position is that the market should rule, right? Let people vote with their dollars. Who cares about trying to figure out whether or not it's a decent school? But somebody with a long track record like that suddenly comes out very strongly in favor of all schools, all public schools, giving mandated standardized tests during a pandemic. It's going to make public schools look completely out of touch and completely tone deaf. And state superintendents of instruction, like the the one in Georgia, came out and said, uh, we absolutely think it's the wrong thing to do to issue standardized tests. And DeVos threatened them with the powers of the federal government. Uh, So this is the legacy of No Child Left Behind that continues to wield its influence here, and said uh, every school needs to be testing kids. How else will we know how they're doing? Well, this sort of doublespeak is indicative of how savvy she is. She knows she can make public schools look ridiculous right now by trying to give standardized tests while teachers are struggling to deliver instruction. Kids can't even get online in many cases. Parents are trying to figure out what to do with their children while they're trying to work during the day. And then the second way that she has used this as a lever is by trumpeting what 
uh, private schools are able to do right now, never mind the fact that many of the private schools that are open are able to open because they have many more resources. There are accounts of schools spending a couple million dollars to retrofit their facilities and to pay teachers more in order to work longer hours, to accommodate smaller class sizes, so that school can be conducted in person on a safe basis. Now, we could do this nationally. We could do it in our public schools. We could do it if there was funding for all schools to be retrofitted, to hire the staff needed to create safe learning environments for young people. This would do a tremendous amount to ease the burden that parents are facing right now and to serve young people who are in many cases not just lear losing learning, right, but they're experiencing tremendous psychological stress and isolation right now. Um, DeVos has no interest in trying to solve those problems. What she wants to do is point to the successes of private schools, not talk about their extra resources, and continue to push, even on her way out the door, uh, voucher proposals and other mechanisms for funding alternatives to the public education system. Jen, there is this belief amongst conservatives that all students uh, kind of experience the same education. They have a uniform experience within schools. The idea is then that using these, this kind of testing, you would have an objective metric on how students are doing in schools, whether that student is in a small schoolhouse in North Dakota or if they're in a public school in Manhattan. It wouldn't make any difference. What is a better way, Jen, to determine how kids are doing in school than these, this test-based accountability? The irony is that the language that you're talking about that's so often used by um, members of the people on the right at the state level, you often get the sense that it's almost like a cult, that they speak in the exact same words, right? They rail against the system the way that we so often hear DeVos doing, and they talk about uh, public schools sort of stamping the individuality out of kids and batch processing them. And Jack and I started to notice that, you know, that it didn't really matter who the people were. That's how they, that's how they talked. And I think one of the big ironies with this is that that kind of condemnation of the what's become standardized about schooling, which is the testing that Jack was just talking about, that really speaks to people, even if they believe in public schools and like their own public schools, right? That that's the thing. That's one of the real ironies of our age that it's been the the Democrats that have so forcefully pushed uh, a kind of you know a, a standardized measurement that people feel is really alien. It's not It's not a complete measure of what they want schools to do. And one of the things that we're seeing so vividly right now in this moment of democratic crisis is that we put so much emphasis on measuring school success as far as boosting student test scores in math and English. And it turns out things like, you know, well-rounded citizen, citizenry are absolutely vital. So I think a big start to undoing the damage that's been done in large part by Democrats is to acknowledge that our measures simply aren't complete enough and that one of the ways that we're going to have to, you know, if we're if we're going to successfully fend off these efforts at the state level to dismantle schools, we're going to have to respond to the part of the rights message that is appealing to parents. And Jack, just again on that, that standardized testing, just for a moment, that standardized measurement makes me think of another part of your book where you talk about the obsession that often Democrats have with innovation and Silicon Valley when it comes to education. So uh, do do are these standardized tests, is this obsession with algorithms, is this all part of the Democrats' uh, focus on innovation and Silicon Valley being the future for America? schools? Well, I think that in the same way that the Republican Party has been recently captured uh, by the far right, uh, the Democratic Party, at least with regard to education policy, has been controlled by the neoliberal faction. And neoliberals believe that you can build systems that will operate without the need for human judgment, right? This is the sort of McKinsey consulting approach to public institutions. So rather than saying, Let's actually invest in building capacity in all of our communities. We've got 98,000 public schools in this country. Let's figure out how to empower local community members, parents, families, the students in those schools, the educators in those schools, and the broader community to govern their schools 
to be involved in figuring out what the quality of the schools is for advocating for needed resources and for you know engaging in a kind of sensible locally driven reform effort that would be a constant process rather than something parachuted down from the state level they're not interested in that right they are instead more interested in systems that can run without the need for the involvement of local people and controlling them from a kind of uh, centralized directorate, if you will, right? That standardized tests are a perfect mechanism for that. Um, you suddenly can gain control over 13,000 school districts and 98,000 schools in a way that you would never be able to otherwise because the scale is too big. And that's the draw of technology as well, right? That there will be some design that can be built out to scale that will enable elites to enact a kind of enlightened vision uh, rather than engaging the hoi polloi in trying to you know, create a better governance system for their own schools. Um, and this is what has made the Democrats so vulnerable to Trumpism, right? Because these kinds of approaches smack of elitism. Uh, they smack of it because they are elitist. Uh, and the obsession with Silicon Valley um, is not only elitist in that way, uh, it also channels huge sums uh, to corporate interests that most often don't lead to school improvement and just lead to more spending on products that don't help anybody. Why does that focus on kind of a, a Silicon Valley solution to the problem. Why does that uh, why does that focus on innovation always lead to a kind of anti-public libertarianism? Why does it always end up being something that is about for profit for uh, the private sector taking over more of the public space? Why does innovation lead to libertarianism? I think that uh, libertarians believe that the market rules, right? That um, any decisions made by a collective body uh, are a kind of Soviet uh, collectivism, um, that they're opposed to it on ideological grounds. Their belief is that a society uh, is only the aggregate of individuals and that the only way that you can gauge uh, individual will is through their actions in a free market. Uh, and so libertarians are inherently uh, of the belief that uh, our decisions in the marketplace are a better substitute for democracy. Um, and this approach where, uh, you know, we are deregulating things, we are opening public education to the private sector, um, this is uh, the dream of libertarians, right? That they believe that the public education system is uh, just a horrible design because it's rooted in democratic politics. It is not exposed to the market. There is no competition. Um, and that's, that's for really good reasons, right? Uh, that we oughtn't pit our kids against each other. Families should not be competing against each other to try to secure an adequate and uh, possibly an excellent education for their young people. Um, and so this approach where you, know, you are beginning to open schools up to competition and when you are beginning to expose them to the market and asking them to, let's say, uh, sign contracts with private companies that will control data, um, you know, there are a lot of reasons why individuals may have real problems with that. And as a collective, we may say, this seems like a terrible idea. Uh, but for libertarians, this seems like a natural progression of moving public schools out of the realm of democratic decision-making and into the free market. Um, so they're very much in favor of that. Jen, you and Jack Wright, when the Koch Network held its annual retreat in 2018 at a resort outside of Palm Springs, the 700 attendees among the richest people in America were instructed to go all in on efforts to transform the education system. We can change the trajectory of the country, Charles Koch told donors during a cocktail reception. You also mentioned that the Bradleys, the DeVosses, the Kochs have long been fixated upon the nation's system of public schools and have slowly laid the groundwork for its unraveling now in our post-Citizens United era 
where uh, conservative elites are increasingly able to translate their animus against public education into same-level policy. The Wall Street Journal reports this week that in Charles Koch's new book, which is titled Believe It or Not, Believe in People, Bottom-Up Solutions for a Top-Down World, he writes, Boy, did we screw up. What a mess. And that he looks forward to finding ways to work with the Biden administration to break down the barriers holding people back, whether in the economy, criminal justice, immigration, the COVID-19 epidemic, or anywhere else. I hope we all use this post-election period to find a better way forward, says Charles Koch. If, and it is a huge if, but if Charles Koch pulled his support, pulled his money from the drive to end public education, how much of a threat would that be to the movement? Or is the movement so big and has so many billionaires behind it that it can sustain even losing Koch's support? Well, I was absolutely thrilled to see that our book was released on the same day that Charles Koch's new book was released. So I felt like that was a nice compliment. And my instruction would be, don't listen to Charles Koch, what Charles Koch says. Watch where his money is going. You're in Illinois. You just saw a progressive income tax measure at the ballots uh, fail uh, by a pretty significant margin. A big part of the reason that that went down the way that it did was because of the influence of Koch's very deep-pocketed network. They do not want to see taxes increased on wealthy people in order to fund things like public education. And so I don't see, I think Charles is going to be taking a softer tone, but the actual policies he's pushing, particularly at the state level, are very much focused on on dismantling schools. One of the things that they're so excited about in, say, Arizona are these for-profit micro-schools. And that's an idea where somebody, they're not even called a teacher, they're called a guide. They don't require any specialized training, any degree, any certification, and they just run a little school for up to 10 kids out of their house the way that an Uber driver works out of their car. And, you know, the idea is that it's radically cheaper, it has no regulation, and this is a model that the Coke that Charles Coke continues to push. They're very excited about it. So I would not at all be fooled by the new softer line. I would pay very close attention to what the vast constellation of or organizations that he funds are doing at the state level. And it's not a pretty picture. Uh, Jen, let me follow up on that with you. You write among the you and Jack write that among the Coke Network's priorities, replacing brick and mortar schools with a voucher program that would allow parents to purchase education projects for their children in an Amazon like marketplace. What is meant by education products that are purchased in an Amazon like marketplace? Is the end goal of the Coke movement against publication, uh, public education, the end of the public school building? Is it a completely virtual education? Is it the kind of education that parents are having to give their student their kids now through virtual schooling I mean, that is actually one of the just biggest ironies of our present moment, that we're actually getting to see the vision play out in real time. And that is that if you're well-to-do enough to afford private school tuition, good on you, right? If you're able to pool your resources with other parents and hire your own teacher and create a pod, that's great. And then for everybody else, you get this kind of inferior virtual education. And But that's the, the vision doesn't stop there. And the, you know, what's funny is that the, we talk about school choice, but you'll, if you listen closely, you'll hear that these sort of Coke affiliated groups are starting to speak in terms of learning options, that they find the language of the school too confining. And it also, you know, it, it kind of heralds a brick and mortar building that people are very attached to. So yes, absolutely. The vision is to get free of the school buildings, the teachers who are in them. There are terrible, terrible unions that are always pushing for more expansive public welfare benefits. Get rid of all the democratic oversight around schools and instead break schooling down to its kind of component parts, these learning options that can be purchased on an Amazon-like marketplace. And you would know it was good because if it's, you know, did it get five stars? 
Jack, you write about how this dismantling of public education, the concept of it, the ideas of it started way back during the Reagan administration, but it kind of failed. And then they had to retune it. They had to change the uh, rhetoric that they were using at the time because that rhetoric proved to be unsuccessful. So, Jack, what was the ideology that they have hidden? What is the ideology that they have hidden? And what is the high minded rhetoric that replaced that ideology? Well, Reagan was pretty straightforward about his belief that markets were better than democratic politics, uh, that unions were bad, that spending was uh, unacceptable, uh, and that private decisions uh, are a better substitute uh, for you know, the kind of collective decisions we make when we get together and have conversations. Um, You know, he believed in the idea that an individual voting with their dollars in the marketplace uh, made sense everywhere, including in public education. Well, he came out and said that, and uh, people immediately reacted with revulsion uh, to this idea applied to school. They were okay with it applied elsewhere, like to the post office, because we don't feel as strongly about our P.O. boxes or our letter carriers as we do about our schools and our children. And so Reagan immediately pulled back on his voucher proposal, which, by the way, is a fairly modest federal voucher. Um, And pretty soon after that kind of gave up on his uh, far-right education reform policies. Um, The right then really toned things down and realized that they weren't going to win on that and spent a few decades in a kind of tense partnership with neoliberals where they advanced choice not through vouchers, not through total privatization, but through charter schools and where they advanced Uh, testing and accountability uh, in lieu of other kinds of aims of theirs, like, you know, putting religion in schools or breaking the teachers' unions, Um, that these were uh, the the key compromise agenda items for both mainstream conservatives and neoliberals for the past few decades. And what DeVos did was she capitalized on the fact that that was a stepping stone for the far right, right? It actually was a real compromise for the left. The left had to give up a lot uh, over the past few decades. But for far right conservatives, for ideologues, right, who see the market as a solution, as a matter of faith, um, you know, the the move to open up schools to competition through charter uh, schooling, right, that that was a step towards their long-term aim. They weren't giving something up. They were winning something there. And so when DeVos came into office, um, she did what so many uh, in the past four years in the Trump administration have done, um, and she just came right out with her ideological agenda and began trying to enact it. Now, she wasn't particularly successful uh, in that because, like so many in the Trump administration, um, you know, she didn't really have the policy apparatus behind her, and many mainstream conservatives weren't entirely on board with things like her massive federal voucher proposal. But what she did was she normalized over the past four years this talk about the importance of giving families options is what she often called them. She talked about the importance of putting children above the quote-unquote system. Right? This is a different way of talking about vouchers. And what we can see is that this is the Reagan agenda coming roaring back to life, but doing so in a way that is designed to still conceal its true ideological roots from you know, the, the mainstream Republican voters uh, who still support their public schools. Um, and so many of these folks uh, will vote for, you know, their local, local Republican candidates or their, you know, their uh, senators, representatives running for re-election um, without really fully understanding the extent to which those folks have bought in to this Trumpian, DeVosian, uh, you know, Reagan 2.0 
education agenda that will actually lead to the dismantling of their public schools. And so DeVos's genius here has been not only to break this bipartisan consensus at a moment when, uh, you know, an opportunity had opened for her, but also to do so in a way that continued to obfuscate the real motives uh, that are motivating this, right? The, the real agenda here, which is to unmake public education, because that still continues to be unpopular. Um, it's just that she's figured out a way to talk about kids and choice and competition in a manner that uh, really has been normalized over the past few decades by both Democrats and Republicans. Um, it's just that her end game is a lot more serious. Jen, and we talked about this when you were on the show two years ago when you wrote your article at The Baffler, How Education Reform Ate the Democratic Party. But why do the Democrats fall for this school voucher program? Why do they fall for this finding of a finding a consensus, finding a bipartisan consensus on a system that, as it seems clear to conservatives and as it should be clear to all Democrats, is about dismantling public education? Well, I really view the book as sort of a companion to that piece that even though we're writing about the right this time, that all along you have the Democrats starting to use this very same language. And so, you know, it sort of inures us to how radical the vision is, as Jack was just explaining. But one thing that, I mean, we have to acknowledge with the Democrats is that basically since Clinton, they've gone all in on education as their only economic plan. And so that puts just an enormous, it heaps expectations on the schools that the schools can't possibly deliver, right? Like, we're going to rely on the schools to be our social welfare program. Schools provide your only opportunity. If you're uh, if you're somebody who doesn't get a college degree, well, then it's, you know, it's sort of your fault. And so as a result, the our expectations of what public education is supposed to deliver are way out of whack with what it actually can do, right? Like other countries don't don't keep arguing that somehow their schools are going to be responsible for global competition, right? And so as a result, it puts the Democrats in this very vulnerable position. Um, on the one hand, you end up with this deep cleavage across the country where there's a bitter divide between people who have college degrees and those who don't. The latter group feels condescended to by the former group. And then you have this sort of, you know, the if the Democrats are constantly talking about education as the problem, it opens them up to all sorts of quote unquote solutions. And what we see going back to Reagan up through DeVos is that the solutions being offered actually lead to a pretty radical vision that the Democrats are are sort of deaf to. Let's talk about that radical vision for a moment, Jack. If their vision were actually employed, what would be the impact not only on our education system, but on governance? How would our representative democracy be changed by no longer viewing education as a public good or education as within the public domain? If the education system viewed students as consumers and not citizens, and in opposition to any collective power against the system, how would that change what we call democracy in the United States? Well, the more that we are atomized, right, the more that we see ourselves as individuals who are separate from each other and who are often in competition with one another, the less likely we will be to actually work together, right, to create some sort of shared understanding of where we're going and where we want to go as a society. We certainly aren't going to solve big problems like climate change as long as we continue to view ourselves as islands of self-interest. That's the long-term far-right libertarian agenda is to get us all to think of ourselves that way. Well, how many institutions are there in the United States that encourage us to, across difference, see each other as equals? There aren't many. The public education system is certainly the largest and the broadest in its reach. Every year, we have tens of millions of students enrolled in our public schools. And it's not just citizens, it's every young person who lives here in the United States can go to a public school. Uh, Now, we still have lots of problems, right? Our our schools remain troublingly segregated. They're unequally funded. Uh, But it's also the case that our public schools are often the fairest 
institutions, the most open in their access, and in many cases still the most robustly funded across the U.S. This is uh, a half trillion dollar investment that we make every year, which is a big part of why the far right is so hell-bent on unmaking public education, because it is a massive expenditure, right? It's, it's not a federal expenditure in the same way that defense, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are. Um, the federal government only contributes about 9% overall of funding, about 45% on average from the state and 45% from local. But collectively, it's a huge investment that we make in young people, and we make it more or less equally. Obviously, there are great variations there. Now, what's the vision? The vision is further atomization. The vision is to get people out of this public system where we are encouraged to think not only about the collective in terms of uh, you know, the way that we attend schools together, but also to move us away from the collective in the sense that it's not just my kid who benefits from her education in the public school. It's everybody in our neighborhood that benefits from the fact that kids are getting an education. In fact, it's everybody in our state. It's everybody in the nation. Um, in fact, there's a kind of global benefit to educating young people wherever they're being educated. And the long-term vision here is, as Jennifer alluded to earlier, to get people to use their own dollars on behalf of their kids thinking of themselves as consumers in a private market. The well-to-do will continue to purchase something that looks very much like school for their children. And in fact, they will send their kids to schools. They'll send their kids to private schools and pay tuition. Um, their kids will get a broad, diverse, rich curriculum, even if the student body will be far less diverse. And they'll be in face-to-face -face instruction with teachers. Everybody else uh, will be dependent on uh, what will essentially be charity education. This, in fact, is what public education looked like a couple hundred years ago before we had a public education system. There were charity schools, often called pauper schools. That's the vision that the far right has. That's how oligarchs win in the end, is that you let people with resources do whatever they want for their kids, and everybody else is dependent on something lesser, a charity education that will keep them off the dole and out of jail, which eventually is not about their own interests. It's about the interests of those who would have to pay the taxes to support prisons and welfare programs. And what's the cheapest way to do that? Well, it's probably online. It certainly isn't delivered by a unionized educator. It's probably not even an educator. It's a gig worker working, uh, you know, at whatever rate the market will bear, uh, certainly not something collectively bargained, and uh, doing so in cooperation with a variety of tech products that can be purchased by the individual families who have been given something like an EBT card uh, for, you know, instead of for food stamps, it'll be for an educational product. And we've already seen this begin to be enacted in places like Arizona, where there is the quote-unquote education debit card, which I will add uh, has no regulation attached to it. Um, and that's, again, by design, right? Go ahead, abuse the money, spend it on whatever you want, as long as those dollars don't end up in public schools. Jen, you and Jack write that Americans have developed more and more negative views of the nation's schools, even while continuing to feel positively about the education their own children are receiving. I find that disconnect uh, fascinating. What explains the belief that your kid got a good education, but that the system is failing? To what extent are parents who say their, child, their child had a good school experience but believe the system has failed. How much does that reflect uh, belief in failure driven by other political issues, religious political issues like prayer in school or the Pledge of Allegiance? I think one thing that's so fascinating right now is that when schools suddenly shut down uh, in the spring as a result of the pandemic, we really got to see for ourselves just how much schools are expected to do. And it was really a wake-up call, right, that we rely on schools to feed kids. Uh, schools provide internet access. In fact, many of them are continuing to provide internet access for whole portions of their cities during this crazy time. We rely on them to do so much more than just educate kids. And it gets back to what I was telling you um, a little bit ago about 
about the unrealistic expectations that this heaps on public education as a system. And you're absolutely right. The, the, the history of this polling is remarkably consistent that, that parents will give, you know, rave reviews to their own uh, local public schools while, you know, worrying gravely about the system as a whole. And one thing that I think is just, you know, is really intriguing and frankly kind of heartening is that if you go to states where Republicans in particular have taken a sharp tack to the right and really started to run against public schools, which in the past was something that you as an elected representative wouldn't necessarily want to do, right? Like that, that maybe you would take votes that undermine the schools, but you wouldn't go around trashing them. Well, that's really starting to change in the Trumpian era, that you hear these sort of wild caricatures. The same kind of language that's used to talk about election fraud is really being used to talk about schools, and parents find it deeply alienating. It's so out of step with what they understand their local public school to be like, right? It's really, it's impossible them to for them to believe that the teacher is, you know, grooming students for sex trafficking or preparing them for Sharia marriage. Um, And so I actually, I think that we're about to enter into a different phase of what you were talking about, this kind of split between how parents perceive the education that their own children received and how they received and how it's going to increasingly be talked about in the era of of Donald Trump, which seems like it's frankly never going to end. So, uh, Jack, just to follow up on what Jen was just saying, you both write that education we might recall is our collective effort to realize for all young people their full human potential, regardless of circumstance. By extension, it seeks to move our society towards ideals like truth and goodness, and to do so within the confines of a school. Impossible expectations coupled with finite capacity exposes public education to innumerable variants of the claim that it has fallen short. Jack, impossible expectations coupled with finite capacity. Do you think that's how we should view education, offering impossible expectations coupled with that finite capacity? And why offer the impossible when all you have is the finite? Yeah, I think, you know, pragmatically speaking, there are some problems with that approach. Uh, As Jennifer was just alluding to, the fact that People count on schools to solve inequality in our country, to create economic opportunity in our country, to address racism, right? These are problems that the schools alone will never solve, never in a million years. Uh, And in that sense, uh, the kinds of expectations that we heap on our schools inevitably will lead to the belief that they are failing even as we continue to believe that our own kids are benefiting tremendously from their educations. And that leads to this divide between the way we view our own kids' educations and the way we perceive the nation's schools, which makes schools vulnerable to reform. Sure, the schools are broken. Let's fix them. On the other hand, I love that our schools are trying to do the impossible. I love that I live in a country where Every young person, regardless of their paperwork, gets to go to a school that is better funded than most schools in the world. I love the idea that even as we continue to fall short, that young people will realize their talents, will explore their interests, will make friends across class lines, across racial lines, across linguistic lines, across gender lines. I love the idea that young people will be exposed to art and music and literature. Now, can we do all of this, right? And can we do it really well? Um, I don't think so, right? I think we'll always fall short, but it's the striving that causes us to actually improve the way that education is delivered for young people in this country. And it has improved over the past 150 years or so that we have had what were then called common schools, in which we today call public schools. Um, Our schools have become better, fairer. Uh, They've become more complex. They've become more diverse. They've become places where the academic Uh, component of public education today is equivalent to what only the elite got once upon a time. Um, That's typical today, right? We have made tremendous progress. Now, 
should we be satisfied? Not in the least. We should be certainly disturbed by the fact that our schools remain segregated, that low-income kids are more likely uh, to be in schools that are underfunded, that historically marginalized racial groups are more likely to be in schools that are underfunded and that have a host of attendant consequences like underprepared teachers. Um, but I think the reason why our schools continue to get better and fairer is that we want so much out of them. And I think that's different uh, in other areas of American life. Right, where we're willing to settle for things. I think the fact that we are unwilling to settle in education, right, that's, that's the piece that keeps us improving. It's also the piece that makes us vulnerable. And I think, I think then the key is to be really clear that our shortcomings are a product of our great ambition on behalf of all young people and not a sign that our schools are failing and should therefore be exposed to wave after wave of highly interventionist disruptive reform. We have been speaking with Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire. They are co-authors of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. You can learn more about Jack and Jennifer's book at wolfattheschoolhousedoor.com. They host the podcast Have You Heard, and you can find out more about that podcast at Have You Heard Pod. And Jack, as Jen was saying earlier, we end all of our interviews with a question from hell. Question from hell is the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response and we have a different question from hell for each of you let's start with jen because she's been practicing so much so you write that in state after state these principles opposed to public education are being enacted into law and policy often behind closed doors and away from public scrutiny some degree of secrecy or opacity is key because americans have consistently supported public education over the decades is this an outcome of democracy stopping at the schoolhouse door? Is education vulnerable to being undemocratically and secretly changed, as you point out in your book that it is, to benefit the wealthy because we do not allow democracy past the schoolhouse doors? And if that is the case, how much do you believe democracy can save public education in the United States? I think that one of the reasons why the right is as intent on dismantling public education as it is, is precisely because of the democratic aspect, that it's too hard to make a buck, right? That you're accountable to all those tiresome institutions, the school board, the union, the parents. And if you can just figure out a way to move it all behind the, you know, uh, the edu entrepreneurial wall and turn the whole encounter into something more like Comcast, right? Where the only, the only point of intervention is for you, the disgruntled customer, to spend hours on the phone with your customer service agent, right? Like that's as far away from democracy as you can possibly get. And while those tools of democratic oversight, like school boards or like you have in Chicago, the local school committees, they're, uh, they're not perfect by any means. They are a huge bulwark against the extraction of, of profit from our schools and the, the sort of unabashed marketizing of them. How did I do? Very well. You did a great job, and I'm so glad you've been practicing. Jack, our question from hell for you is, if the ideology behind the end of public education, the dismantling of public education, is the end of anything public, the idea of public anything, what is the system that movement foresees? What's the system they hope to create? What is their ideal when there is no sense of public anything? What's that world like? First, I just want to make sure that we're grading on a curve here because Jennifer <laughs> knew this was coming and had an opportunity to practice. So whatever Look, my answer is should be, uh, you know, accounted for as a sort of 101 class rather than her graduate seminar version. Sure, but I believe the grading uh, on a curve is socialist, so we won't be doing that today, Jack. So if you could just move on with your answer, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, so, you know, I, I think the answer is... Um, embedded in what people like Betsy DeVos talk about when they draw parallels between uh, the education system that we see today and other industries, right? And they often rely on these analogies. Jeb Bush once famously talked about milk, endlessly talked about milk, 
when talking about the shortcomings of the public education system. He talked about the fact that we have access to zero fat milk and 1%, 2% whole milk, chocolate milk, strawberry milk. What on earth was he talking about there? Right? He was talking about shopping for a product. Right? Betsy DeVos, uh, in a speech at Harvard, uh, talked about food trucks. She talked about how near the Department of Education there were no good restaurants. And eventually, these food trucks came in, and they began to offer choices to people. And suddenly, everybody was really happy because they were eating good lunches. What's she talking about? She's talking about consumers shopping for products in a free marketplace. The long-term vision here is to break what they call the public school monopoly, to create a private marketplace where if there is anything like a public school, it charges tuition. And you will send either your charity voucher to them as payment for that tuition or your own dollars if you can afford to educate your own kid. And of course, most people won't choose that because their charity voucher won't cover an in-person school. It will cover a virtual school which will be significantly less expensive for taxpayers. And we all know that the core of this vision is about reducing public expenditures and atomizing American life so that each of us is advancing our own self-interest and not participating in anything that resembles a collective decision-making process. Jack, that was an exceptional answer to the question from Hal. Jen, thank you so much for being back on our show. You know that I will be annoying you in the future to have you back on. Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire are co-authors of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. Learn more about their book at wolfattheschoolhousedoor.com and make certain that you find out about their podcast, Have You Heard, by following them on Twitter at Have You Heard Pod. Again, thank you to both of you for being on the show today. This is an exceptional work, and I think it's the best thing that I've read so far when it comes to the threat of dismantling public education. Thanks so much for being on our show. Thanks Thanks for having us. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. I love that tagline, and I always love the thought in my head that the person, the guests are still on the line when they hear me say it. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Richard Norwood. This week's question from hell is, what are you refusing to concede? What are you refusing to concede? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets our new grand black This Is Hell winner cap, hat, beanie, toque. It's not really a toque. It doesn't have the ball on the top, so whatever it is. You can check out all the new grand black This Is Hell merchandise, the winner hat, and all of the other stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Don't forget, without you, we got nothing, so thank you for all of your support as we are completely listener-supported. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Richard, please share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. Oh, boy. Um, Our first uh, one this morning is from Chandler. His uh, answer is that I should go into work without hearing the results of my COVID test first. <laughs> That's kind of dangerous, but okay. okay. And the next answer is from Kim. I refuse to concede that my self-employed business has COVID-related disintegrated and that I have to find a BS job. <laughs> there you go. Enjoy <laughs> yourself. So what are oh you refusing to concede? Cody says the replay the replay of past arguments in my head as I come up with more clever points. <laughs> I win every damn time. <laughs> I bet you do. And so does your obsessive compulsive disorder. Wally says that Ted Cruz is Zodiac. Didn't you? I think, <laughs> yeah, we I think said that, was, that one. We yeah. said that one already. Yeah, yeah. Why is uh, am I am I repeating them? No, I don't know. It doesn't sound so far. Okay. I think the last one we had yesterday Oops. was from Krimsky. Do you have anything past Krimsky? Uh, hold on, my uh, uh, I just do, do, do. sorry, I just lost the. Page. That's okay. 
By the way, thanks to everyone who has supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise, like the whole new gray on black line of truckers' caps, face masks, winter hats, and tote bags. Thanks to Joseph, who showed his support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. So thanks, Joseph. All right, we're back. Right. And Wally's, uh, we did Wally. Yeah. Carl says that my mother was right in 1972. <laughs> okay. And uh, so what are you refusing to concede? Justin says that the broad democratic non-agenda of a return to normalcy and civility, right. coupled with a years-long failure to associate Donald Trump with the rest of the Republican Party and the numerous unforced errors of rehabilitating and endearing people like Lindsey Graham to American voters just before the election as... <laughs> Oh, my God. As well <laughs> as a promise to oppose populism and progressivism in all its forms. Ah, so it's an essay answer yes. to this week's question from hell. <laughs> Bogey says, I refuse to concede to alcoholism. Yes. Brian S. says, territory. <laughs> and Lewis says, I refuse to concede that cats are... See, See one, these are all the repeats, repeats from yesterday. Uh, I don't know what's going on over there. I did put it in the... Oh, I see that. I see what the problem is. Already? I know you have more of this yes. week's answers to this week's question from hell. Again, which is, what are you refusing to concede? All right, now i got to find the... We're refusing world. to concede the end of this segment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As we try to find more answers. All right, how about the commons? Okay, somebody... Oh, no, those are from two days ago. All so right. Let's skip these. Well, let's just move on. What do you say? I can... I see. I have... Uh, Wally, yeah. Dan, that's from a day ago. Yeah. Okay. I know, I hate this new Facebook <laughs> format, too. It really screws up the question from hell. Go ahead. Kelly says, I refuse to concede that my hoard of toilet paper and broken phone charger cables. <laughs> All right. Brandon says, it's GIF with a hard G, damn it. <laughs> I don't care what the guy who invented it says. <laughs> and Dan says, I refuse to concede that we will forever remain in a cacistocracy okay and i believe that's it all right so we will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell again what are you refusing to concede on tomorrow's show richard who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time 10 a.m chicago time here at this is hell.com tomorrow thursday we will have ann newman on her baffler article drugs for the people rethinking the global pharmaceutical supply chain and in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin stands on a principle which has got to hurt. Thanks to everyone who has supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and click on support. You can also support This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber here to our weekly Patreon podcast that has a new monologue from me and a classic archived interview every Friday. Those interviews cannot be found online anywhere else only if you subscribe to, Patre- to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com. Slash This Is Hell. If you subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon, you will receive This Is Hell advertising stickers in the mail and a special exclusive Patreon patron-only discount on all of This Is Hell's merchandise. And we want to thank Nikosh, who subscribed to This Is Hell on Patreon yesterday. Thank you, Nikosh. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live, 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to our guests, Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire, co-authors of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. You can find out more about their book at wolfattheschoolhousedoor.com. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.